turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 6. Romans 6, 15 to 23. You follow along as I read Romans chapter 6, verses 15 to 23. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. And having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. When you were slaves of sin... You were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Last Lord's Day, we looked at the first part of this particular paragraph in Romans chapter 6 under the sermon series title, Slaves of Righteousness. And I told you then that there were five contrasts in this passage. Five contrasts. The first two we looked at last time and the next three we'll conclude with this morning. In verse 16 of Romans 6, we saw the first contrast and that was the contrast of the master's slave. Paul is presenting the contrast of slavery. And he says in verse 16... Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves of the one whom you obey? In other words, we're all enslaved to something. You're either enslaved to sin, that's what he goes on to say here, either of sin, which leads to death, or You're a slave of God, or as he says here, a slave of obedience, which leads to righteousness. In other words, Paul is giving a great contrast here, and he's saying that all of us serve a certain master. And there are only two possibilities of those masters in the world. It's either a mastery by sin or a mastery by God. 
It's either a slavery to sin, which leads to death, he says, or a slavery to obedience, which leads to righteousness. That's the contrast of the master's slave, which we saw in detail last Lord's Day. And then secondly, we also saw last time the contrast of the master's standard. Equally, Paul says in verses 17 and 18, that we, whoever we are, are also serving a certain standard. And for believers, he says, according to verse 17, we should give thanks to God that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed. Those who have become believers in Christ ought to thank God because whereas once they were slaves of sin, serving sin's standard, we have rather become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, the standard of righteousness, the standard of the Word of God, the standard of right doctrine, and therefore the standard of right living. And he says, it is that to which you were committed. God having vouchsafed us, having committed us as a body, a body of believers, the body of Christ, to that very standard. We follow that standard because God has committed us to the standard. We have been set free from sin, he says, and we've become slaves of righteousness. There is a standard And the standard is the Word of God, and the standard is a standard of righteousness, and unbelievers, they follow their standard, and their standard is unrighteousness. And so, by contrast, we have a standard of righteousness and a standard of unrighteousness. A standard of a heart that is committed to the world, and a heart that is committed to the truth, the truth of God's Word. Clear contrasts that are given here. For this morning, I want us to continue our study about these contrasts. And I want you to notice in verse 19 the contrast of the Master's summons. The contrast of the Master's summons. Look at verse 19. I am speaking in human terms, Paul says, because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to further lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. And really what Paul is doing here is he is turning the axis. He is making his full point in this paragraph. And he does it by giving us a summons. He takes what he has just said and he issues a summons out of it. But first though, he says, I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. What does he mean by that? I mean, that's a bit of a strange phrase, frankly. I'm speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. What does he mean by that? Well... He simply means that in giving the Roman believers the vivid illustration of human slavery, he's accommodating himself for the sake of their need to understand the sense of what he's communicating. In other words, he's condescending to their level of understanding. He knows 
that they are going to be very familiar with the concept of human slavery. And he says, in effect, I want to tell you something that I know you'll understand. Because he knows that they'll readily understand the nature of human slavery to see what it is they're supposed to obey. As soon as he talks about this slavery of righteousness, they're bound to understand because of the human slavery that they see all around them. You realize that in this time, in the first century, there was probably more slavery than there was freedom in that known world. A majority of people were in some kind of slavery. A minority of people were in some kind of freedom. And so everybody would have understood what he was driving toward here. He's taking a profound spiritual truth, which of course is the transfer of allegiance from sin to obedient righteousness, and he's contextualizing it for them. He's putting this profound spiritual truth in a way that they will readily understand from their own present human experience. He allows them, by accommodation, to understand the spiritual slavery that he's teaching them because he knows they'll understand that concept of slavery from the human slavery that they so readily see and experience in their own world. And so that's what he means by, I'm in essence, speaking to you on a human level, using human terms, because I know of the natural limitations of your mind. You're not going to understand great spiritual truth about slavery unless you see it concretized in a concrete way. And then he gives us the main point of the entire passage. And it is this. It's a summons. For just as you once presented your members, remember that means your mind and your body, it's not just talking about your limbs physically, your limbs physically do what your mind tells them to do, but he's here speaking not just simply of the physical aspects of a person sinning, but their whole mind, their will, their affections, all of that is bound up in that term members. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness, so now, that's the turn of the axis, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness, leading to sanctification. Because I know that you can understand the human nature of slavery, I'm telling you, whereas you once gave both your mind and body as obedient slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, which led to an entire selling out to total lawlessness, even so now present your mind and your body as obedient slaves to right living, which leads to even greater levels of progressive holiness in you. That's what he's saying. That's his point. Everything that he has said and everything that he will say in verses 15 to 23 turns upon this imperative, this command. And he's giving us, of course, another contrast because he says, whereas you once presented your members as slaves, slaves to impurity, slaves to lawlessness, so now present your members, yourself, as a slave of righteousness. And it may even be 
that more than a contrast, he's really doing a comparison. Because notice what he says. He compares their new life with their old life. Just as you once, so now present. Maybe it's better to say this one is a comparison and not just a contrast. It is a contrast because they can clearly look and see the contrast of their old life to now their new life. But really he's saying just as you did that, presented your yourself, your mind, your body, your will, your affections to impurity and lawlessness, so now make another kind of presentation. Present yourself in a different way. Whereas once you were enslaved to impurity and to lawlessness, you must now, as an imperative, be enslaved to God as progressively sanctified righteous men and women. And they would have understood that completely as well, because just as we would understand it, we look at our old life of sin, we look at whom we were enslaved to, that is sin, sin and its effects. We saw what we were, we saw how it enslaved us, we saw that we were totally, totally enslaved to its desires and to its passions. And he says, now, think of that old life, think of what you were, think of what you did, think of how you always obeyed your master, the master of sin, think about how you did that, and just as you always and forever presented your life as a enslaving to sin, so now present a similar kind of enslavement, although not to sin now, but to righteousness. Look at your old life and repeat it with two major things deleted. Sin is your master, Christ is your master now, and instead of unrighteousness, righteousness. Just as you knew how enslaved you were to sin, in your slavery to its passions and desires, so now present yourselves, your mind, your will, your affections to God as slaves of righteousness. That's how you ought to live now. This is a command. And we can easily see the difference in the lives of these two realms of existence. One, he says, is a slavery to impurity. Do you see that word there? Impurity, it means uncleanness. And it's often, by the way, in Paul's writings, a word that is used in reference to sexual sin. Don't, don't go on now presenting your, your body, your mind, as an instrument of sexual sin, of uncleanness, but present yourself to God as a person of righteousness, a person who has done away with that old life of sin. And then he also says here that you are, in your old life, a lawless person. He says, whereas once you were slaves of sin, you were presenting your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness, leading to more lawlessness. You were a lawless person and your lawless acts led you to further deeds of lawlessness. You couldn't get out of it. You were enslaved to it. You couldn't do anything but sin in this way. And by the way, this is a fascinating use of this particular word lawlessness because it's the word anomia. Ah is that little A, that little A in front, the little alpha privative that negates the word. We say atheist. That's an A in front of theists, a person who does not believe in a God, an atheist. This is anomia. Namas is the word for law. No law. Anamas. 
A person who does not know the law of God, does not regard the law of God, that's what he says characterizes those people who are slaves to sin. They don't care about God's law. They don't care about following God's law. They don't care about obedience to God's law. All they care about is themselves. They're at the center of their universe. If I anglicize that Greek word, we could say anamas, which is no law, and anomian. Here he's saying a person is not just an antinomian, someone who's against the law of God, but someone who is no law. No law of God is in their heart. They're not going to follow what God says. They're anomian, antinomian. And you might be saying, I don't want to be enslaved, but I tell you, I'm not enslaved to anyone. No one's my master. But Paul is saying very definitely here, you either have one or the other. You either have a slavery to sin or a slavery to obedience to God. There is no other option. There is no other middle ground. Everybody is enslaved to something or to someone. You can't say that you're not enslaved to anyone. Paul is characterizing a kind of slavery that used to be a part of your existence and now is not a part of your existence if you say you're a Christian. He says, I want to accommodate you to the human concept of slavery. And just as you once presented yourself as a slave to impurity and to an anomia and anamas against the law, against the law of God, it led to a whole lifestyle of lawlessness. So now I tell you, he says, present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. And oh, this is a wonderful, wonderful slavery. You say, no, no, I'm not going to be enslaved to anyone. I'm not now, and I will not be enslaved to anyone. By the very statement, you show that you're enslaved to something. You're enslaved to your own will, enslaved to your own desires. But if you are enslaved to Jesus Christ, enslaved to righteousness, that's a beautiful enslavement. That's a wonderful kind of slavery. It's a liberating kind of slavery. If you choose to live this way, Paul says, then you're really free. You're really free. You thought you were free before. You don't know nothing. You are free to serve Jesus Christ. It's the kind of life that James speaks of in James 2.12 when he talks about the law of liberty. You see, when you become a Christian, you're able with the kind of liberty, the the first kind of liberty to serve God truly from the heart. That's why he says what he does in verse 17. You have now become obedient from the heart. It's, a, it's an opportunity for you for the very first time in your life to love God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength and to love your neighbor as yourself. That's what he talks about in James 2. It's the law of liberty. It's the law of treating your neighbor as yourself. And when you fulfill that, it provides you with obedience, James says, to the royal law of God. You see, there is a law in the Christian life. There is a law. Don't let anybody tell you that there is no law. There is a law. But it's the law of love. It's the law of faith working through love, as Paul said to the Galatians. It's a faith 
that works with a desire to obey. You want to say yes to Christ and His law. You want to say that your slavery to God motivates you to obey, for instance, the Ten Commandments. You want, when you look at the Ten Commandments, to say, I want to do this. I want to obey God. And when I don't obey, it grieves me. It hurts me. I once saw a title of a book that I thought was ingenious when describing the Ten Commandments, and it called it The Law of Perfect Freedom. That's what it is. That's what the Christian life is. It's the law of perfect freedom. I'm perfectly free to obey God and enslave myself to Him. You say, well, that doesn't sound like freedom. Well, I'm not talking about libertarian free will. I'm talking about the kind of enslavement that says, I want to serve God. I love God. And I want to serve the people of God. I told you last time, as the Apostle John characterizes it, listen to this, 1 John 5, 2-3. By this we know that we love the children of God when we love God and obey His commandments. Do you see? Bound up in the love of God, for anybody who says they really love God, they obey His commandments. John says, For this is the love of God, that we keep His commandments, and His commandments are not burdensome. You see, for the Christian, the Christian life is not a life of rules and regulations and standards that are burdensome. They're not. Oh yes, there are times when we look at our own life and we wonder if the love of Christ is there because we look at the choice to sin or not to sin and we choose sin and it looks in that moment like the commands of God are burdensome. But when we jettison those ideas, when we think the right thoughts, when we live the right, the right way, when we want to do what God asks us to do, commands us to do, when we want to present our bodies, our minds as slaves of righteousness, when we want to do that, then we won't see Christ's commands as burdensome at all. We'll want to do them. We would love to do them. And by His, His Spirit's empowering, we will do them. I'll say it like this. Living the Christian life is the only freeing life you can live. You know, you look at these people who seem to be so free. I remember reading one time of Madonna's lifestyle, the singer. And I remember her talking about the freedom that she has and you know what? She is enslaved because her life is totally sold out to her sin. Totally. Just to give you one example. But a person who's a Christian, a person who loves Jesus Christ and wants to obey His commands, we are totally free to live not for our own desires, not being sold out to our own sin, but to live righteously in Christ, to really live the royal law of liberty toward others, and a keeping of God's commandments which are not burdensome to us. I ask you the question this morning, is, is that what characterizes you? Notice back again at verse 19. So now, latter part, so now present your members, your life, your mind, your body, as slaves to righteousness. Is that what you do? Is that your presentation to God? Do you offer up your life 
as a living sacrifice to God? Lord, here it is. Take my life. Make it what you will. I'm yours. I want you to do whatever you will in my life. You do it, Lord. Do you say in your heart instead, hey, get away from me. I'll live my own life. I'll do my own thing. No one's going to tell me what I can and can't do. You see, if that's your attitude, then the Bible says you're lawless. You're living a lawlessness. But if you can say that what characterizes you is a humble desire to obey Jesus Christ, to be His willing, obedient slave, to be like Paul often addressed the beginning of his epistles, Paul, a bond slave of Jesus Christ. That means someone who was willing to be enslaved to their master. If that's you, then you're being progressively sanctified. Notice what he says at the latter part of verse 19. So now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. That's just a big word for holiness. You want to be holy. You want God to set you apart as a person who desires to obey His will. That's what characterizes you as a Christian. That's the difference between Christians and non-Christians. We want to be slaves to righteousness leading to holiness of life, a separated life, a consecrated life. That's the contrast. Which realm characterizes you? Then he gives another contrast. We'll call it the contrast of the Master's sequence. Look at verse 20. When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? The end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end eternal life. You say, what do you mean by this term sequence here? Well, there's a clear sequence. There's a one, two, three that characterizes unbelievers, and there's a one, two, three that characterizes believers. And it all is set up to explain the latter part of verse 19 and this command present your members as slaves to righteousness. It doesn't come out in the English Standard Version. I'm sorry that it doesn't, but there's the little connector word for. It's in the NASB, the New American Standard Bible, and it's there for a good purpose because he says, I'm going to tell you again on the basis of how it is that you can be a slave to righteousness. Verse 20, For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. What does he mean? That's a very interesting way of putting it, isn't it? When you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness? means nothing other than this. When you were enslaved to sin, you thought you were really free. You thought you were really free. And in one sense, you were. You were free of the dictates of the righteousness of God. You were free from that in that sense. You didn't care about it. You didn't want it. You didn't want to obey it. You were free in regard to it. But that kind of freedom is a real slavery. Freedom and righteousness is the only kind of freedom there is. This is a sort of freedom, a kind of freedom. This is the kind of freedom that the world says they have. Look, I'm free from you Christians and all of your demands. I'm free from you Christians and all of your rules and all of your regulations. I don't get into any of that stuff. 
Well, he says yes in one sense. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to that, but it was a bondage. It was a bondage. It wasn't a real freedom. Maybe you should put quote marks by the word free there. You were, quote, free, unquote, in regard to righteousness. But notice how he answers that. But what fruit were you getting? I mean, he answers his own little use of the word free there in quotes. But what kind of fruit did you have? You thought you were free. You thought that you did not have the law's demands nipping at your heels. You thought it. And you may have even deceived yourself into thinking that you were living it. But notice what he says, verse 21. But what fruit did you receive? What kind of fruit was there in your life? You you were a slave to sin. What kind of fruit is there? But what fruit were you getting at the time, at that time, the time of your unbelief, the time of your unrighteousness, from the things of which you are now ashamed? What fruit is there? See, you only have one master, sin, who has you as his slave. That's the first part of this sequence. Sin and a slavery to it. That's what he says in the first part of verse 20. And then he says, you were free in regard to righteousness. That's the second part of the sequence. You were freed from righteousness. Yes, that means you were in bondage to unrighteousness. That's the second part of that sequence. You served sin as your ultimate master and Lord. And what did it bring you? It brought you a life of unrighteousness. And what did that bring you? That's the third in the sequence. And notice what he says. The end of those things is death. The end of of verse 21. You see? That's the ultimate goal. That's the end of it all. That's what we say to people when we say, look at the way you're living. Look at the lifestyle that you're choosing. Here's the very clear sequence of your life. You're serving sin, your master. It's bringing you nothing but unrighteousness. And the end thereof is death. That's the very clear sequence of verse 21. You think you're free, but you're not free. Because what you're serving is sin, your master and Lord. And when you serve sin as your master and Lord, it only brings you unrighteousness. And what does unrighteousness bring? Brings death. Brings death. The end of those things is death. What kind of fruit did you think was accruing to you at that time of the life of your unbelief? What kind of fruit were you really harvesting now that you look back on your pre-Christian past? And he says you see nothing but an ashamedness. You see, he's, he's asking these Roman believers to look back on their life as a reason for them to present their present life as a slavery to righteousness. And he's saying, look, look at the contrast. You cannot present yourself as a slave to unrighteousness anymore. Because if you look back on your life, if you look at the whole of your life in your pre-Christian past, what do you see? What do you see? You see... An entire life given over to a slavery to sin with nothing but unrighteousness in its path with the end thereof being death. He says, now as a Christian, when you look back on that, what do you see? You know what the word comes? 
Shame. Shame. I look back on my life. I look back on those early years of my life before I came to Christ at 18, 19 years of age, and I look back and I just say, shame. Just shame. I'm ashamed. That's the fruit that I receive when I look back on those things. That's the fruit of a life of unrighteousness from the time of the things of which I'm now looking on and I see nothing but shame. But please, look at verse 22 quickly. But now. But now. Oh, thank the Lord for Paul's but nows. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, here's the fruit you get. The fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. Do you see the sequence there? Instead of being a slave to sin, you're now a slave of God. And instead of the fruit being a fruit of unrighteous living, the fruit that you now receive leads to holiness of life. And when you look at the end of that kind of life, you see eternal life, eternal bliss, eternal hope, eternal love. You see Christ. That's the end of the road. Which road are you on? Which path are you treading? Clearly, clearly here given as a contrast. And he says to true believers, the genuine believers at Rome, but now that you've been set free from sin, you're no longer serving sin as your master and Lord. You become slaves of God, not slaves of sin anymore. Here's the kind of real fruit, the freeing fruit, the fruit freedom you get leads to holiness. And by the way, What's in it for you at the end of the holy life, including a holy life of struggle? A holy life of continuing to battle remaining sin? A holy life that says, I love God? Nothing more than eternal life, that's all. That's what you have. You have a God who says to you at the end, well done, thou good and faithful slave. Enter into the joy of your Lord. You only have joy. Is that enough of a motivation? Is that enough of a delight to deal with sin in the way that you know you should? That's the, that's the contrast. That's the contrast that he gives us here. That's the sequence. Make your choice. Slavery to sin, unrighteousness, eternal death, slavery to God, righteous path, holiness of life, eternal life. That's the contrast of the sequence. Aren't you so glad, he says, but not for believers? It's a package deal, by the way. There's no serving of sin as our master with the result that someone says, but I'm still righteous and I still am going to receive eternal life. No. If you serve sin, it will only lead to further sin and then eventual death. But at the same time, don't think for one minute that you can say yours is a slavery to Christ and then live a life of unrighteousness, believing that in the end you'll be granted eternal life. No, sir. He's no antinomian, Paul. He's no anomian. 
It's either sin, slavery, unrighteousness, eternal death, or God, slavery, righteousness, eternal life. Both sequences go together. You're either all of one or all of the other. You can't be some of one kind and not all of it. It's a package deal. Which sequence characterizes your life? Are you in sin, slavery, unrighteousness, headed for eternal death? Or are you in God's slavery by the mercy of Christ, living a life not of antinomianism, not in a, as an attitude, attitude against the law of God, but a life of righteousness, holiness, with the joyful expectation of eternal life? And that flows right into verse 23 and the contrast of the Master's sentencing. Here's how he simply puts it, verse 23, For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Oh, don't fail to notice the contrasts here of a wage earned and a gift received. A wage earned or a gift received. If you choose to live your life in such a way that you come to the end with the expectation that you require that God give you the just wages of your works, He'll give exactly to you what you've earned. You'll receive it. If you demand it, you'll receive it. I demand of you that you give me what I want. I had a recent conversation with someone who said to me, on the balance of my life, on the whole of my life, I can't in my wildest expectations believe that God will send me to hell simply because I'm not a Christian. And I say to that person, if you ask for your wages in full, Paul, Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. Death. But the free gift of God. It's a gift not earned. It's a gift received. And you know, Paul, not merely the theologian, but also the preacher, brings this paragraph, indeed the whole of Romans 6, to a climax here in verse 23. The preacher is preaching for an affirmation and a commitment. And your preacher is asking the same of you. What's your commitment? Which sentencing judgment characterizes you? Are the wages of your life bringing you to an eternal death? Is that what you expect? Is that what you want? Is that what you demand? If you expect the fruit of your wages from a life of sin to be eternal life, it will not occur. The wages of sin is death. This is the inevitable fruit of a person's slavery to sin. You cannot escape the inevitability of it. It will come. God has set its course. If you live a life of sin with an unrighteousness of character, you will die and wake up and in an eternal hell of death and destruction. But... If you, and this is Paul's heart toward the Romans, and it is my heart toward you, by the mercy of God, if you recognize your life for what it is, a life of unrighteous fruit, with the inescapability of the judgment of God, you can throw yourself upon the grace of God, and if you will acknowledge this very offer of God, you'll receive the free gift of eternal life. 
I offer it to you now. And if you reject it, you'll stand in eternity as one who forever rejected the offer. You should rather say, I gladly desire to live a righteous slavery unto Christ Jesus, my new master and Lord. That's what he says there. Eternal life in Christ Jesus, our master. Our master. Is that your glad obedience? Is that your obedience from the heart to the standard of teaching that Paul gives here? Oh, I hope that it is. I pray that it is. Let's bow together. Our Heavenly Father, oh, I pray that everyone here can use that very terminology, my Heavenly Father, my Master Christ Jesus, my Lord. I want to be your slave. I want to be your willing bondservant. I want to seek to love you with all of my heart and soul and mind and strength. And I want to love my neighbor as myself. And I look back on my pre-Christian past and I see nothing other than that for which I am ashamed. Lord, I thank You and agree with Paul, but now You have been freed from sin. Thanks be to You, God, for this indescribable gift of Christ. I pray now as we celebrate the Lord's table that it will give us a meaning for this communion that is so rich and powerful and glorious. Lord, I pray for those who don't know Christ in our midst. Pray that You will minister to them through this Word and that they will want even now to be reconciled to You through the death of Your Son. If you're in that category, if you're in that realm, you can simply yet profoundly acknowledge your sin to God and your desire to turn from it. And that you no longer want to be a slave to sin's mastery, sin's lordship. You want to say yes to Jesus Christ, no to your sin. You can do that by receiving the gift, the free gift. It's free to you. It was born not by you, but by Christ. And what He did at Calvary, He died He laid in that tomb for three days. He was buried there. And He was raised from the dead. So that as I preach and give you this offer of eternal life, you can grasp it. You can hold it. And you can receive eternal life. That is your heart. And if for the very first time you've received Christ, please 
partake of this, the Lord's table, with us. Every true believer, please partake so that we might celebrate the death, the burial, and the resurrection of Christ Jesus our Lord. In whose name we pray. Amen.